Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. At the age of 21 years old a young Mancunian poet became engaged to his girlfriend. When things didn't turn out as planned, Lem Sisse's reaction was to write a poem that would come to immortalise his feelings and surprise audiences for many years to come. Invisible kisses. If there was ever one whom when you were sleeping would wipe your tears when in dreams you were weeping, who would offer you time when others demand, and whose love lay more infinite than grains of sand. If there was ever one to whom you could cry, who would gather each tear and blow it dry, who would offer help on the mountains of time, and who would stop to let each sunset soothe the jaded mind. If there was ever one to whom, when you run, will push back the clouds so that you're bathed in sun, who would open arms if you would fall, and who would show you everything if you lost it all. If there was ever one who, when you achieve, was there before the dream, and even then believed, who would clear the air when it's full of loss, who would count love before cost. If there was ever one whom when you are cold will summon warm air for your hands to hold, who would make peace in pouring pain and make laughter fall in falling rain. If there was ever one who can offer you this and more, who in keyless rooms can see open doors, who in open doors can see open fields and in open fields see harvests yield. Then see only my face in the reflection of these tides through the clear water beyond the riverside. All I can send is love and all that this is, a poem and a necklace of invisible kisses. 
Invisible Kisses gets read at a wedding about once a month. I'll receive an email from somebody, you know, from all over the world and saying that uh, we read your poem at our wedding and it means the world to us and it's written on our hearts and etc. I've always wanted people to video the person who's reading it. I'd always like to be a, like a fly on the, on the wall to see it being read. And people often get emotional when they read it at these, uh, you know, important times of connection between couples who then go on to have children, who then go on to build homes and then go on to have families and those families have families, you know. And it, it's just beautiful that at that moment this poem celebrates their union. I really want to talk about why I wrote this poem because maybe it'll never be read again at a, at a wedding. <laughs> and maybe it will, you know. But um, I wrote it when I was 21 and I'd met a woman and we got engaged. And she was from America and she was studying in Manchester and um, obviously I'm over this now. <laughs> this is a long time ago, but... But we got engaged, and and I had no idea about what that meant, really, familiarly. She graduated in America, so she had to go back to graduate, back to New York. And she was a caramel-skinned black woman, young herself, 20 years of age, so we got engaged just before she went back to graduate. I couldn't go with her because I was supposed to be introducing Maya Angelou on stage at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. So we had a big discussion about this, about going back to see her graduation or staying here. And um, I stayed. I didn't eventually do the event for all kinds of strange reasons. And, um, and she never came back. She never came back, and I had no idea that she'd never come back. And I was so shocked, I didn't see it coming. And I think, in retrospect, I think I was getting payback for all the times I'd hurt other women in my life up until then. You know, it, it happens to a guy, you know, you're like, oh, this is what the people I've been, you know, have hurt or not called back or, you know what I mean? This is what it feels like. But she never came back. And it was the way it happened. It was like slowly, you know, she'd be saying, oh, yeah, I went out last night. And, you know, my mum's... And her, it was her mum who didn't want her to... You know, she didn't want to lose her daughter to this crazy poet in, in England. I'd given her the ring just before she went, an engagement ring, you know. And uh, I wrote a poem, and, and the poem started with Invisible Kisses, and what I did was I, I lost all of the poem and kept the term invisible kisses because the invisible kisses that's at the end of the poem that I was going to give her a, a poem and a necklace of invisible kisses was all about materialism. It turned out that it was all planned. I, I sort of realised 
Oh, you got the... You got the engagement ring that cost me thousands of pounds at 21, and you went back. But, but I wasn't bothered about that. I didn't know what the rules were, and I didn't have a family. I, I had no, no, no family, absolutely none. Because what you would do at that time is call your mum or your dad or, you know, even if you didn't like them, you'd still go to, you'd have a go-to place. And I was very aware I didn't, I was fully aware, in fact, that I didn't have that. But I thought, well, you're supposed to give the ring back. You know, that's what you do, isn't it? Isn't that what you do? I still ask myself that question. But I'm 21 and I don't know any different, so I decide to go to New York. She still hasn't said it's the end, but I kind of know it is. It, no, it is the end, but I'm going because I, I th feel like I have to see her. I feel like that's what you're supposed to do. So I go, I travel, and um, and I stay there for a few days with her mum. She's got a boyfriend now as well, who's the DA for some part of New York. Her mum set her up with this guy. And then I decide I'm going to go, you know, I, I can't take it. It's just madness. I'm like a stranger in the house, you know, who they're all like, and she wants to go out with this guy. So I say, okay, I book a flight back as well. As we're going, I say, you are going to give me the ring back, aren't you? That's what happens. And she, she, um, she says, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And she gets the ring and puts it in her pocket. She says, I'll give it you at the airport. I'm like, okay, she's giving me a lift to the airport. And the ring isn't the, the, the thing. I, I know what I've, I'm going to do. I've got it. I know exactly what I'm going to do. It's not about the money. It's about giving this thing back. I actually thought if you keep it, it'll be cursed. It'll be, it's not a good thing for you to keep. We get into the car and then she says, uh, I've got to change my clothes. I can't go to the airport like this because her mum works at the airport. And and so she got changed and she got in the car and then just as we were leaving, I said, have you got the ring? And she said, I left it in my other clothes. She said, I'll go and get it. Well, that's when I really knew, you know, I knew. I was like, wow. So she went in, she got the ring, back into the house, got into the car, took me to the airport. And we got to the airport and she gave me the ring and I gave it straight back to her. I said, I didn't want it. I never wanted it, and I don't want it. I just wanted you to give it back to her, and I gave it to her, because it meant nothing to me. And then I got on the plane, and I came home. And um, I was really hurt. <laughs> um, and I had to revise the entire relationship and think, what, what was that thing? What was it? And I think that um, this whole poem is, you know, the last line is, all I can send is love and all that this is, a poem and a necklace of invisible kisses. And it was to show that materialism wasn't just, wasn't on my mind. 
in any way and that, that love is a greater thing than that. If ever there was one who, who can offer you this and more, who in keyless rooms can see open doors, who in open doors can see open fields and in open fields see Harvey Shield, I think it's about family. There's a line in it which I'm most proud of. If there was ever one whom when you achieve was there before the dream and even then believed. That's everything about what a parent is to a child and how, you know, there are bigger things than rings and necklaces and houses and stuff. My mother came to this country, was pregnant, gave me to a social worker to have me fostered for a short period of time. The social worker gave me to foster parents and said to them, treat this as an adoption is yours forever. The foster parents kept me for 12 years, said they were mine forever, put me into children's homes, said they'd never speak to me again, never spoke to me again. Then I was then held in four different children's homes. The last one was a virtual prison and then I was let go at 18 years of age and I was given my birth certificate at 18 and it had my name on it, Lem Sissay. Up until then, I thought my name was Norman Mark Greenwood. And the social worker gave me letters from my mother, pleading for me back to the social worker to whom she'd given me to for a short period of time and who had no intention of giving me back to her. From then at 18, I was determined to find my family and also to to prove what happened to me because all family is is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime and I didn't have anybody to dispute the memory of me so I had to prove what had happened to me in the first 18 years of my life never mind just finding my family you know family is a, is a collection of memories disputed between one group of people it's a, it's a set of people taking photographs of the same event and then arguing about which photographs to use in the in the final movie in the editing suite you know and I had nobody to argue about me about whether I was alive you know it's if a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it you know did it fall and you know the argument is everything and I didn't have that so I had to in documentary evidence prove what happened to me to prove that I wasn't crazy So I became known as a poet. First time in The Guardian was at 21 years of age. And um, my first book comes out. And I knew then that I would use all of the resources that I had as a poet or as a profession to take people back to my story so that they could investigate it. And, and, and it's taken years. Uh, and slowly but surely, uh, you know, there's been television documentaries and radio documentaries which have proved what happened to me and what was wrong uh, what they did. And meanwhile, I've also had a career as a writer of some sort while searching for my family. And all of this is going on while I meet this girl at 21. You know, who would expect a 20-year-old to understand what I was going through at the time and I didn't understand what I was going through at 21 after leaving children's homes you know for three years and having no family and trying to work out what that meant to me and then seeing it in her life with her mother and her father and brothers and sisters back in New York and 
And I was basically getting a glimpse of the rest of my life, which was seeing other people's dysfunctional families and seeing how that dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families and that how all families try to not admit that fact and how not admitting to their dysfunction becomes the armour of a family, which is basically a lie, but if it's a collective lie, everybody's held in mind. And anyway, I was just getting glimpses of what I would see for the rest of my life. And I think quite possibly Invisible Kisses is the articulation of that, of me seeing the power of love and of family and and not really understanding what that was but knowing that it was it was very big sometimes poems can they can see things that you can't as a writer you know I, i've never i've never had there is not you know there is nobody that um would say this to me if there was ever one whom when you achieve was there before the dream and even then believed you know there is no family person who's you know that way for me who was there before the dream and even then believed who would clear the air when it's full of loss who would count love before cost i've got to be talking about more than the end of a relationship there haven't i i mean You know, my poems are like my family. They're where my memories of where I've been and what I've done, who I was, what I was thinking, and the world around me, really. Thank you. There is a rhythm, a higher-than-sky rhythm, the rhythm of spaces, a sweet taste in liquor lace rhythm, an eyelid flicking slick thigh licking rhythm. Invisible Kisses was the beginning of me as a public person, somebody who reads in public, but it also actually, at the time of writing, I was writing a lot about race and a lot about racism. And, you know, people were speaking of me as a poet who was uh, radical and uh, angry and that kind of force to be reckoned with on stage, specifically. And so I would read the love poem, write it like I would read at the Pan-African Congress conference at the London School of Economics. And I'd say, this is radical, I'm going to read you a love poem. And there was something about writing about love and about, here, loss which for me was a really radical statement because what I was saying was that racism has stolen my parents, it's stolen my family, it's, you know, I can't get a taxi late at night and I tell all kinds of stories about that. But actually, this relationship of me talking to you on stage about racism, reading poets, it's a very comfortable relationship that we're having. And I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with being paid to perform my poems on stage and then for being told that I am radical. I don't get that that could be anger because I was really angry. 
Do you know what I mean? And I was really angry about feeling like I was being packaged uh, or I was packaging myself into a performative, angry poet. Because there was more than that. There was more to the story than that. So this poem, Invisible Kisses, was like a beacon of light for me to say that actually I will not be pegged into a corner, you know, the black poet from Manchester. I was the first black poet who didn't speak with a Caribbean accent. It was all Benjamin Zephaniah, Grace Nichols, John Agard, James Berry, Valerie Bloom, the incredible Caribbean poets who gave me life, you know, gave me a stage to walk on. And I didn't know that. That's not why I wrote. And that's not why I talked about racism. I talked about racism because it was deeply personal, the effect it had. So this poem was really important to me to break an idea of what a radical poet is inside me, you know, and to say, no, you've got to strike out on your own. You've got to read a poem that people would not expect to be read in this environment because it matters. And I did. And it did. So there are no rules. I think I found why... This was an important poem for me, and I think that is it. It is a statement of the personal is political, and I'm really proud and pleased that I got there at 21 to see that. It's about the road less travelled, isn't it? It's about taking the pathway that feels the least acceptable, but intuitively the right way to go. And um, we need our radical poets right now. And we need our young radical poets right now. And we need them to write love poetry as much as they write, you know, a polemic. I think a poem starts to talk back to you in different ways to the ways of when you wrote it. <laughs> Look, I, I, I could apply this to relationships that I've had and... Uh, I don't know, it's, it's quite scary actually looking at the poem Invisible Kisses now and seeing how it fits to me and they're quite live things poems, aren't they? It's like looking into a, like a some form of weird mirror. For more great podcasts from The Guardian... Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.